If you are just joining us this morning after a bit of time away, or perhaps for the very first time, we have been looking together at one of the short letters of the Apostle Paul written to one of the younger disciples that he was leading and working through in his ministry. Uh, We've been studying the letter to Titus in the New Testament. Uh, It is a short letter, just a few chapters, and we've focused it even further. We're just really closely studying the first five verses. And we have been amazed to discover just how much there is in this and what incredible guidance is there for those who are eager to know how a Christian leader thinks and moves and acts in the world. I want to invite you to listen with me, if you would, to the letter to Titus, its opening verses, including the one that we'll be looking at as we close out our series today. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and draw us ever closer to you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The week before last, I I made a rather sudden trip back to the great state of Connecticut to attend to some family matters there. And during my time, was able to uh, go to a very interesting luncheon held uh, along the shoreline of Connecticut. Uh, At that particular gathering, these two gentlemen were present with me. Uh, The man in the beige coat is my father, who looks pretty good for 88 years of age, I think. Uh, His his eldest son is not weathering the journey as well as he is. Uh, The other gentleman, the one in the uh, blue coat with the very uh, deep tan, might be a face somewhat familiar to you. His name is John Boehner. Mr. Boehner was a 13-term congressman from Ohio whose more familiar image, dating back from 2015, you may know even better, when he served as the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. In the course of our luncheon, uh, Speaker Boehner reflected on many, many different things, but one of the most impressing, uh, impressive aspects of his reflections was his sadness over how brutal American life had become in his point of view. 
He said, you know, my mom and dad raised me in a two-bedroom home alongside of 11 other siblings, and that was before my grandparents moved in. And being condensed like this meant that we just had to learn how to get along or we'd have killed each other. We had to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable, is what he said. We used to be able to do that in Washington, said Boehner. Uh, I remember the days when um, we may have fought it out on the floor of the Congress, but we still related to each other as fellow human beings. I disagreed with a lot of my colleagues over matters of policy, but we were very often friends behind the scenes. We didn't demonize each other. We looked for ways to try and compromise and get the work of the people done and to pursue the common good. And then he said, now with all of this social media and the 24-hour ideological news ranting at us, we've all gotten so hot-headed and so hard-hearted that we find it difficult to get along even within our own parties, he said. Even within our own parties. And so I left, he told us at lunch. I got out. I resigned, and I could hear the exhaustion and the wistful sadness as he said this. If you were able to be with us last Sunday, then you know that Charlie Browning struck a similar note in his very fine sermon. If you didn't get a chance to hear that message, I hope you will. You can find it on our website. Charlie talked about the empirically verifiable shift that has happened in American life. It's not your imagination. You can prove it. The shift that's happened in our public life towards the negative, towards anger and vitriol and the dark side of everything. We've become known, as Charlie reminded us, for what we're against. We identify ourselves by what we're against instead of what we're for. And he reminded us of the call of Jesus Christ to be difference makers in that context, in this very context in which we're living today. Jesus himself said, as we uh, remarked at the start of the, service, of the series, is that Jesus said, I want you to be like salt. I want you to be like light. I want you to be like yeast. I want you to be, uh, though small in number, I want you to be outsized in influence. I want you to be someone that brings the positive and the possibilities and the good and hope and faith and love into every environment that you penetrate. I want you to penetrate the environments of this world. I don't want you to stay locked up under a bushel uh, in, a, in a God box someplace. I want you to be influencers in the world. I want you to be, he would say perhaps, difference makers in this world. Do you feel that you're doing that? Do you feel that you even understand how you might do that? In part one of this series, we started to try and get a handle on this stuff. How do we do it? How are we to be difference makers? What is a difference maker? And in the opening episode, we suggested that it begins with having and retaining a clear sense of identity as a difference maker. The Apostle Paul models this particular kind of clarity about identity in his self-introduction to Titus in this letter. 
as I observed just two weeks ago, Paul could have introduced himself in all kinds of ways. He had many different delightful aspects. He could have introduced himself as a Roman citizen, which was one of, it was a 1%, 1 to 3% of the entire empire could claim they were Roman citizens. He could have introduced himself that way. He could have uh, uh, explained that he was a, a notable Pharisee, a political and religious influencer. He could have gone on and talked about how uh, he had gone to the best law school in the land, and he had. It would have been appropriate. It would have gained attention for Paul to introduce himself in any of those ways, but he chose not to. At least in this letter and many other letters, he chose to introduce himself in very specific and instructive terms. Paul sees himself first and foremost as a servant of God, as a servant sent, that's what the word apostle means, sent on a mission to sow the seeds of truth that lead to godliness, which is to say to, to, to lead to the place that enables us to be all that we were designed to be, and to steward Christ's message of hope, the hope of eternal life. This is how Paul thinks of himself. Wherever he goes, throw me in prison, put me in a public uh, conversation, uh, invite me to write a personal letter, and, and in each of the contexts of my life, I'm going to think of myself as a servant sent to sow and steward the wonders of God for the sake of others. The question I asked in the first uh, week and I ask again today is how, how do you think of your identity? How do you think of yourself? You don't have to introduce yourself literally in these terms I've suggested, but, but is this your core identity? Do you think of yourself as someone who is a servant sent to sow and to steward the things of God? And what a difference that might make if we could claim that identity and walk into each of the circles and spheres of our lives thinking to ourselves, how do we live that out today in this place with these people? Charlie then went on last week and he unpacked for us Paul's greeting to Titus, which itself also tells us so much. It, it, it describes three of the great gifts that you and I can give to other people that will make a profound difference in their lives if we give these gifts intentionally. Uh, if you didn't hear that message, once again, I invite you to go back and to attend to it and ask yourself, am I doing this Am I expressing these gifts to my family members, to the people I work alongside, with my friends, with the people I meet in the social circles of life? And could I do that? I don't know about you, but I, I, oh, and as I was listening to the message, I thought to myself, boy, my life is fundamentally different, as in better, because those gifts that were described by the Apostle Paul and in the message last week have, have been transformative in, in my life. Uh, I, I'm so grateful I've had uh, some Pauls or Paulas uh, in my life who so actively and regularly, for example, expressed affection for me. It, it was like drinking from a, a can of confidence daily, the way some of the people in my life have expressed affection for me. I've had these pretty down moments in my life where I felt like a tremendous failure or I was uncertain of the next step I would take or I was struggling with, with, with one personal uh, issue or another. 
And the thing that got me through those very tough moments was so often remembering the face and the heart and the attitude of somebody who had affection for me. Somebody that I knew uh, was for me, that, that saw something good in me, that, that loves me. And, and I would think, I gotta keep going because I know that person is still there. Who in your circle, who in your circle of relationship needs you to come to them like Paul did to Titus or like Jesus did to so many people in his earthly ministry and say, this is what I see in you. These are the gifts I see in you. This is the promise, the potential, the good I see. This is what I feel about you when I think of you. And this is what I hope for you. Who do you know that you could extend this affection to that might lift them more than you could even dare to imagine? I thank God, too, for the people in my life who have built in me a sense of affiliation with a cause bigger than my own little preoccupations. I think left to my own um, uh, devices, I, 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 could, I could easily spend all my day just surfing uh, Facebook reels. I could, I, could, I could spend my life just devolving into the trivial. I could so easily think mainly of, of life as about getting my comfort and my needs and my appetites satisfied. But I've had people in my life that, that kept pushing me and calling me to consider a larger frame a larger purpose in life. And, and I realize now that, that, that my life would have been a long-term run of misery and boredom and depression had I not been stretched to imagine something and a purpose and cause larger than myself. I remember reading once a quotation by the Irish playwright uh, George Bernard Shaw that spoke to this theme. This is what Shaw wrote. This is the true joy in life, he said. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Oh, how, how shrunken we sometimes can become. Again, just look at the streams in, in, the, in the media and social media today, and you, and you, and you just hear the, the, the clod of ailments and grievances, the complaining that somebody out there is not making me happy. So who do you know that needs to be invited to affiliate themselves with a greater purpose than they may be focusing on right now? I remember when I was really discouraged and depressed at one point uh, at home as a teenager, my dad uh, pulled me uh, aside and he says, Here, I, want, I want you to go over to Northern Westchester Ho Hospital. I want you to walk in and, and, and then go up a, a flight or two and find a nurse's station and just ask, is there anybody that hasn't gotten a visit in a while? I don't know if you can still do this, but I did it. I'd been so down. I'd been so focused on my little provincial concerns. And I found myself in conversation with an elderly man who had not seen a visitor in a long time and I heard about his life's story and my heart got stretched 
and my vision got enlarged and my spirit was lifted. And it was one step, I suppose, toward the vision of having a life that would be all about that sort of thing. Who do you know who needs to see a greater purpose than their own comfort or status quo? How can you help somebody find the joy, the real joy in life that comes from rising to their role in the family, rising to their role in the team, rising to their role in the church, in the society, in the kingdom of God? Who can you call up towards that kind of destiny and influence? And, and how might you give the gift of affirmation to someone else in this week ahead? You know, it's been my experience that underneath the surface of most people's lives, there linger two anxious questions. The first of the questions is, in spite of all that is wrong about me, am I okay? Will I be okay? And secondly, in the face of the mess that I see around me on the planet, is life going to turn out okay? Will it ultimately be okay? The answer that difference makers bring to those two questions on behalf of Jesus Christ is yes. You will be okay and life will be okay. Despite the mess, the brokenness, the emptiness, the confusion. For two reasons. Grace and peace are available. Jesus offers you grace in spite of your failings. This is one of the great messages that we have to carry to each other. We have to be honest about the failings, but we have to be persevering about extending the grace. Put your trust in me, says Jesus. Ask for my forgiveness, and you're going to be okay. You can start again. And Jesus offers you peace in the face of all of life's agonies. And let's be honest, there are agonies. There's, there's, there's no figuring out or dismissing some of the things that happen in this world. When that kid so tragically and senselessly died outside that gas station in the town next door last week, or in so many other similar circumstances of life. When, when, when the disease didn't respond to the therapy, when the relationship didn't recover as we'd hoped, there's only one source of real peace. There's only one thing that we can really hang on to when it's not okay in the moment. And that is the promise of Jesus that one day I will make all things new. One day there will be no more tears or crying or pain. I will make all things new again. And I don't know about you, for me, in the face of the losses and the messes of life, I hold on to that promise. And it is my source of peace. It seems to me that if we forget who we are in God's sight, our identity, 
And what he has called us to do, our mission, and if we don't have people in our lives who give us these three great gifts that we've been talking about, it's going to be really easy to settle into the spirit of negativity and hopelessness that is so common in our age. We can become, I suppose, a bit like John Boehner. We can, we can grow so weary and so discouraged at pressing against all that's pressing on us that we finally say, I quit. I resign. I'm out. And if we don't do it verbally and out loud, we might do it silently and inside. Do you know that some biblical scholars think this is actually why Paul wrote to Titus? Do you know that there's very good reason actually to think that, that, that what we have here is not just a, another letter of instruction, it's, it's not some, um, some cheery letter of encouragement from a parent to a kid who's having a blast at summer camp. It is actually a last ditch Desperate delivery aimed at keeping a very tired and very discouraged servant from quitting entirely. Harry Emerson Fosdick, a brilliant preacher of an earlier era, said that the true purpose of the whole letter to Titus turns on the opening phrase of chapter 1 and verse 5. And the phrase is, the reason I left you in Crete or as the old King James has it, for this cause left I thee in Crete. And if you think about it, this begins to make sense. This, this letter, Fosdick contends, is, is like the letter that a loving, wise parent writes to a kid who's absolutely miserable at camp and, and who has just written home saying, I hate this place. Come get me. I quit. Now, on first blush, you would think that going off to a, a Greek island like Crete might be a nice holiday. I mean, we spend our time, especially in February here in Chicagoland, dreaming of going off to Greek islands. Um, but this was not the assignment that Titus got. The job Paul had given Titus was to do something extremely tough. For one thing, as Chuck Swindoll observes, islands are notoriously difficult places to cultivate spiritual maturity. Think about this with me for a moment. And by the way, that is the job that Titus had been given. Cultivate the spiritual maturity of people. That's always the job of the church. It's not just to get together. It's not just to hold observances and services. We do want to honor and glorify God, but the goal is to cultivate a spiritual maturity that enables us to be salt and light and yeast wherever we go. And islands are notoriously difficult places to cultivate that kind of growth. You can imagine why that might be true on Fantasy Island or, or maybe on Temptation Island or maybe on Survivor Island or Alcatraz Island, but, but think about islands in general. Think about the nature of islands. As Swindoll points out, islands are by their nature often transient places. People come and then they go. They may come and think they're going to stay, but they actually don't stay for very long and they move on again from the island. 
How in that context are you going to help people to form the deep, transparent relationships that are the true context of spiritual growth? Nobody grows spiritually by flitting from relationship to relationship. You need to stay around long enough to be found out for who you are. This is what marriage is so good for. <laughs> it helps us. You know, it, we suddenly are found out for who we are and in ways that we not even were aware that we were that way. And we're held accountable to dealing with that, to facing our humanity and looking for grace and for forgiveness and trying to seek God's power for change. But on an island where people come and go, how's, how's spiritual growth going to happen? Because islands are often isolated from the world beyond them, especially in the first century when there was no TV or internet, an island could also be a pretty provincial place, a place where there are customs and ideas that are invariable, that are not open to change. Christian discipleship, as you know, is all about change. It's all about replacing old ideas that aren't really leading to life with God's new ideas. Uh, be renewed in the mind, and that will lead to transformation, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, this, is, this is the nature of, of spiritual maturity, is that we're constantly being turned over in our thinking and revolutionized in our awareness and taking God's point of view uh, more and more and less and less the world's point of view or our own. Finally, islands can be pretty hedonistic places. Again, not all islands are like this, but, but many, if you think about it, are associated with a focus on comfort and leisure and even excess, at least for tourists, right? Think of the images we're so often give, given. So how well is, is that spirit of, of, of comfort and luxury and leisure and excess, how is that going to get along with the Christian message that spiritual maturity comes through self-denial and sacrifice and surrender. Maybe this is why there are not a lot of thriving megachurches on Key West. I don't know. All of this is to say that Crete was, first of all, a, a, a very difficult context in which to cultivate spiritual maturity. This was a hard assignment, a hard context to, to have to do this kind of work. And secondly, to state the obvious, the second major challenge was that Crete was filled with Cretans. Have you ever wondered where we got the association that exists now in, in, in the English language between the word Cretan and somebody who is difficult, stubborn, unreliable, difficult, or dumb. Have you ever wondered where that connection came from? Apparently, because at least some of the ancient Cretans were like that. They were challenging people. In verse 10, Paul affirms in his response to Titus, there are many rebellious people there. There, 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 there's all kinds of meaningless talk and deception amongst these people, Paul says. 
Uh, One of Crete's own prophets, remarks the apostle, has said it himself. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, said Paul. In other words, Titus, if you're finding this work difficult, I get it. (laughs) I get it. I admit it. I did not send you to an easy place or among Easy people. Have you ever been on Crete? I don't mean literally on the Greek island of Crete, although I'm always open to a good Airbnb suggestion. But I mean in the deeper sense. Have you ever been in a place that was just so hard? amongst people that were just so difficult that you were growing increasingly weary and discouraged and thought, I think I'll just quit. Perhaps some of you are on Crete today. You've been given yourself to some person or some enterprise for a very long time and you've seen so little fruit from the effort that, that you're just wanting to walk away from it. And if that is you, you've got a brother in Titus. And you have a mentor in St. Paul. Let me just say, and it's a longer sermon for another day, there are times to quit. There are times to quit. John, John Boehner might have been right to walk away. I don't know. Jesus did say, There are times and circumstances when it is right to shake the dust from your sandals and move on and find ground that's more hospitable to whatever it is the seed is that you're planting or a ground that that shows more hospitality to who you are and what you bring. There are times to quit. But God's word also teaches us, and it may be a larger and more dominant theme, the importance of perseverance in hard and good work. Child raising is hard work and our kids can be cretins. Let's let's acknowledge that. Marriage is hard work and our spouses and we ourselves can be cretins. Leading or serving people in the workplace or in the community or in organizations someplace, even in the church, it can be rocky, wretched work at times that will naturally lead us and leave us feeling like, ah, there's got to be someplace else I could go, some people different than these I could be interacting with. And in this context, the counsel of James, the brother of Jesus, in his famous letter can seem almost crazy. Do you remember what James said in chapter 1 of his letter? I, I will quote it for you. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. For the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work on you so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Why do I have that verse memorized? 
because I so desperately have needed that truth. I've so desperately needed to remember in the midst of the difficult times to keep going, to not give up. And, and, and the gospel goes on, or the New Testament goes on, and Paul says elsewhere, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, in other words, don't be too quick to give up the good work you're doing first because God will use your perseverance to mature your character. Even if you don't see any fruit from this. Don't worry, the fruit's being born. It's in your character that it's growing. That's the first reason to persevere. Secondly, don't give up too easily because the work of cultivating the growth that God seeks in you in your children, in your spouse, in your friends, in our world, that, that kind of growth doesn't happen on microwave time. It happens on agriculture time. It can be happening and growing beneath the ground and you don't even see it. You never know when it will burst up and show itself. I don't know if you remember the story that Charlie told last week about the moment when he was called in by his bosses. He was working at a tech company in Austin, Texas, after college. And he had been uh, laboring pretty hard for a whole year, and he had not closed a single deal. And, and, and the, he got the note, I come to the boss, see the bosses. And he went in there with trepidation. And you may remember that he was shocked because they said, we just wanted to tell you, we like what we see. We see what you're doing. And want to encourage you to keep at it. In other words, persevere. And, 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 and Charlie, being filled with this affection and this affirmation, you know, floats out of the office and goes back to the work with incredible zeal. Now, what he did not tell you was the end of the story. Several months later, Charlie closed two of the biggest corporate deals in the company's history because he did not give up. He did not give up. Someday, maybe we'll get a chance to come back to this letter of Titus and mine the rest of the wisdom in the verses past the first five. <laughs> but. But as we come to a close today, let me just leave you with two seeds of truth, if I may. We find them in verse 5, where Paul finishes um, telling Titus why he had left him on this rugged rock and amongst these ragged people. Paul continues, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, Titus, I want you to put a few things in better order. The work was unfinished when you came. It's probably going to be unfinished when you leave. But I want you to just pick a few things. Don't be overwhelmed by the hugeness of it all. Just put a few things in order. Just get up today 
set a couple of things in order, get up tomorrow, do likewise, keep going. Maybe you need that advice on Crete, your Crete. Just make a start. Don't be overwhelmed by the muchness. Address one, maybe two issues. Set some things in better order around you, or sometimes the most important thing is to set it in better order within ourselves and see what happens over time. And secondly, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. And the, the word is sometimes translated ordain elders in every town. And that word in its original sense means to name, call up, and pray for God's power to move through that person or persons so that the work will continue when you're not there and can go beyond where you are. It's a reminder that one of the most important differences you and I can make in this world is to invest in particular people. To have a very small list of people we're really purposely investing in. Paul had that. Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, or a, few, a few of them. They were always in his mind. He was always reaching out to them, calling them up, praying for them. What's one of the best things you can do is to name the gifts you see in people, call them up to greater use of those gifts, pray for God's power to flow through them. It's something that you and I can do in every family, in every workplace, in every church, in every community organization. So the only question is who? Who's that list? Who's on that list? So that's where our series ends. I guess I should say that, that even were we to read all the way to the end of the letter to Titus, we would still be left in suspense. We would hear Paul talking more in the rest of the letter about these difficult people, these Cretans. We would hear further advice from him on what he thought Titus might do to set things in order there. We would learn more about the character that we're trying to shape in people and the, and the things we have to do when we're on rocky ground. But the letter ends without an answer to the most significant question, the one that I'm most interested in, and that is, did it make a difference? Was the letter a difference maker? Did it have an impact? Did it help Titus recover his own identity as a servant sent from God to sow truth and to steward the gospel of eternal life? Did Titus himself get inspired by the way Paul treated him to become somebody who went around uh, expressing affection and, and building affiliation and offering affirmation that improved and lifted up other people? Did Titus end up putting in order a few things? Did he appoint elders in any town? And the New Testament leaves us hanging. It leaves us wondering, did he just quit? Did he pull a banner? Did he resign? Walk away? 
weary and discouraged as we'd have some sympathy for. In 1978, which was the first year, by the way, that an atheist Cretan named Dan Meyer was reached by a Christian ministry and brought to the feet of Jesus. In 1978, archaeologists digging on the island of Crete came across the remains of a massive stone edifice dating back to the earliest centuries A.D. And in time, the scholars realized that what they had discovered was an unusually large temple. It was a five-aisled temple. It was evidence of an unusually large religious community that had met there in that particular place. And the building had been destroyed by an earthquake in 670 AD, suggesting it had had a, a, a long life. It had been home for a long time to a significant group of people. But upon one of the pediments of the ruins, the archaeologists found an inscription carved in the stone. It was a tribute. It was a dedication, actually. It was an expression of thanks to someone that the worshipers there called St. Titus. St. Titus of Crete. I'm so glad he didn't quit. I'm so glad he became a vessel through which the movement of the Christian gospel carried on till one day it might spread out to our land and touch our lives, bring us even to this place. I'm so glad Titus continued to do his part to be salt to be light, to be yeast in his time. And the question now is, how persevering, how persevering will you and I be in following the call of Christ to be difference makers in our time? And with whom and how can we start building that legacy.